you have a Bible, turn and join me into the book of Philippians. We're going to be there in a moment. But I kind of want to share a story with you of just what God has been doing and some of the exciting things that he's been doing amongst our people, our church family. And I was having lunch with a friend. Um, He's part of Living Church, part of one of our living communities. I was having lunch with him mm, a few weeks ago. And we got talking about the series we were doing at that time, which was studying the scriptures and the importance of Bible study and, and all of that. And in that conversation, he began to share with me a burden that God had placed on he and his wife's heart and, and something that they wanted to do to just bring home the importance of knowing Christ through the scriptures. And so he shared with me what he was thinking. I'm like, wow, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty incredible. He said, I, I actually want to, we want to do this, and we want to give one to every family, one to every couple, one to every single person that's part of Living Church, because we believe in this so passionately. And I want to read to you a letter that, that they wrote to you, because it comes from their heart. And he says, Dear Church, it is with great joy that I write this letter to you. For the last few weeks, God has impressed upon my heart the importance of the Bible, God's Word. I listened to Matt Duggar and Mark Jones share personal stories as to how the Word has led them through dark times and broke through habitual sin. I watched a video of believers in Indonesia receive Bibles with tears of gratitude. I observed as Mark led us two weeks ago through the inductive Bible study method and saw all of us join together to interpret and apply God's God's Word. Living communities worked alongside one another last weekend during Serve Cincinnati to put Bibles together for believers around the globe. What a month it's been glorifying God's written Word. All of this has moved me and my family in a powerful way. It's moved us to take some of what God has given us financially and let me add a little side note to that. Basically, what, he, what they're saying is they're stepping out in faith, trusting that they're going to get a tax refund, and they're taking their tax refund to give you what they're going to give you today. He says, for each family and single person here this morning, our family would like to give you one study Bible free of charge. And you see them on the back, um, back table there. So it's an ESV study Bible, it's leather bound, and they want every person, every family, every single person to take one, every family, all right? One per family, couple, single, you take one home. It's yours, from them to you. And he says, I understand many of you may have a similar Bible, but I ask that you take one regardless. Use this Bible as a family Bible or... Give it to your spouse, your teenage child, a neighbor you have been building a relationship with, or give it to a new believer or someone who's been sharing life with your living community that needs to take the next step in their relationship with Christ. But please take a study Bible home today. As you take home this free copy of God's Word, our desire is that each family, each couple, each single person would receive this gift with a renewed commitment to knowing Christ through His Word. And I'll add that also... What we want you to take is not just a study Bible, but there's a book. We referenced it during the series called Epic, which helps you understand the theme of redemption through this book we call the Bible. So we want you to take one of those books as well. And there's also bookmarks, 
It has a list of all the resources that we talked about during this series with websites. And kudos to Matt Duggar who created and designed that bookmark for us. So we want you to take a study Bible. We want you to take a book, that epic book. We want you to take a bookmark. All right? And they go on and they write, It is my prayer that this gift would deepen your commitment to study God's word consistently or begin a new commitment that you have been putting off. I pray that Living Church would be devoted to God's word. May this gift be a catalyst to that end. We say as a church that we exist to know Christ, live Christ, and make Christ known. In order to accomplish that mission, we must begin with knowing Christ. And knowing Christ begins with getting to know Him through His Word. And they write, Let us cry out with Paul when he said in Philippians chapter 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And so this is their desire. You might sit there and go, well, I already have one. This is their, this is what, they want you to take one anyway. This is their gift to you because they have a burden for us and for you to know Christ through his word. Because this book, this scripture, it's all about Jesus. And so it's amazing what God is doing throughout our church family. And so I would just share that with you. It's exciting to see not only that what God has laid on someone's heart, a family's heart, to encourage us, but also what he's doing in the life of our church and different people and how he's rescuing people out of sin and how he's calling people to himself. And, and it's interesting as we come back into this book of Philippians, and if you're there, Philippians chapter 3, I, I want to read through verses 1 through 11 this morning. And then I just kind of want to unpack it for us today. Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, 
I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, let's kind of review a little bit of the setting in which Paul writes this letter. Paul is writing this letter while he sits in prison. He's 700 miles away from the house church to whom he's writing. And we assume that the way this house church received this letter was their house church pastor, Epaphroditus, went and visited Paul while he was in prison. And so Paul handed that letter to Epaphroditus, who then traveled back 700 miles to Philippi, and then began reading this letter to the house church. And so that's kind of the setting. Paul doesn't know if he's going to live or he's going to die. He's in prison. He's not sure if he's going to have tomorrow, six months, six years. He doesn't know. And as you read through his letter to this house church in Philippi, it's, it's kind of easy to, to capture the main theme, that, the main truth that Paul is trying to communicate to his friends in Philippi. He wants them to be people of joy. He says in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, he says, I want to encourage you to be joyful in the faith. And then throughout the, the letter, he talks about you need to rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And as we talked about the very beginning of this study a few months ago, the, the main purpose or the main truth that comes from this letter is that our longing for the presence of joy is satisfied in the person and presence of Jesus. Now, as we come into chapter 3, we need to understand that Paul has a problem. We need to understand that he has, has this problem, and it's a problem that not only Paul had before he came to know Christ, but it's a problem you have if you don't know Christ. It's a problem I had before I came to know Christ, and it's a problem that everyone inside and outside of this room has. And for us to really grasp and understand what Paul's trying to communicate here in the opening verses of chapter 3, we need to understand the problem. And the problem is this, it's a righteousness problem. It's a righteousness problem. And the problem is that Jesus said that if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to have a certain kind of righteousness. A certain kind of righteousness. And Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, look at the kind of righteousness he says you need to have. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds, this is Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses, runs past. And as I was reading this, the, the image that came to, my, came to my mind was, if you've ever seen uh, Captain America Civil War, all right, the opening scene of that, and Captain America, they're like running, like in, in a park, and Falcon, right, he's running, and then, if you haven't seen the movie, sorry, but, um, and, and Captain America's just running, like, laps around the dude. He's like, on your left, right, on your left, and he keeps saying it over. I mean, he's just flying. He's just running past this other guy, and it's kind of, when I was reading it, right, I don't know why the Spirit of God made me think of Avengers, but he did, so I'm like, that's the visual that I have, so Jesus is saying, unless you exceed, your righteousness runs past that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you have a righteousness that surpasses that of the most righteous religious people on the planet at that time, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's pretty, okay, that's crazy. That's a pretty tall standard. I need some serious exceeding righteousness. But there's more to the problem. You see, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, he said, there's nobody that's righteous. Not even one. And he said in Romans 3, 23, he said, everybody sinned, and we actually fall short of that standard. And so, 
you know, as I'm thinking about this, I'm going, okay, but I know that I have friends. I know there are people who are thinking, listen, I'm a pretty moral person. I'm no saint, but I know I'm not that bad. I'm not, I'm not that bad. Compared to whom? Compared to what? What's your standard to which you were saying, I'm not that bad? Who are you comparing yourself to? Who are you comparing your own righteousness to? You see, when it comes to being in the presence of God with him, he's the CEO of heaven. He sets the standard, not you, not me. In fact, he is the standard. And if you have ever been on uh, LinkedIn, the professional social network, right, and you go, maybe you're sick of your job, and you start looking around for new jobs or whatever like that, and there's a little jobs tab. And you go click on the jobs tab, and maybe there's a series of different job postings. And let's say you click on one, and you scroll down on this particular job, and it gives you the responsibilities, the things that you would be doing, and you scroll on farther down, and eventually you come to that section of the job posting that says requirements or qualifications. And it might say you need to have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or a certain amount of years of experience, or if you're going to be in education, you need to have a certain kind of teacher's certificate. Well, Jesus knows the requirement for entering the kingdom of heaven. And he says the requirement for entering the kingdom of heaven is a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees. And he's not saying that to be mean. That's very gracious and loving of him to tell you and me what we need in order to spend forever with him in heaven. And so he tells us right there, he says you need a righteousness that goes far above and beyond the most religious, righteous person that comes to your mind right now. You have to have a righteousness that exceeds them. And see, that's the problem. The problem is Jesus gives us this requirement to be in the presence of God. And he knows that if you don't have this exceeding righteousness, he knows what what the result is for you. It's deadly. It's detrimental. Just read the Old Testament. When people try to enter the presence of God and they came without the requirement that God expected of them, it was deadly for them. Jesus is loving to tell us, listen, this is what you need. You need a righteousness that's beyond your own, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. But Paul tells us we don't have a righteousness in Romans chapter 3. And see, that was Paul's problem before he met Christ, and it was my problem, and it's all of our problem if we don't know Christ. But then this is the beautiful part of what Paul has to say here in Philippians 3. Enter Jesus. Enter knowing Christ. Because Jesus becomes the solution to our righteousness problem. And I think the principle that, that's there for us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1-11 through 11 is this. Living joyful is knowing Jesus because Jesus satisfies your need for righteousness by being the righteousness you need. Jesus satisfies your need for righteousness by being the righteousness you need. Let's unpack this. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's not surprising that he says this again. And look at, he says, finally, and I heard this from J. Vernon McGee. I thought it was beautiful. He said, Paul says, finally, in chapter three, we've still got two more chapters. It's like the pastor says in conclusion and goes for 20 more minutes. This is where we get it. All right. So Paul's going finally, and he goes for like two more chapters, right? He says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. Again, he's bringing home that, that, that principle, this 
this reality that we can have joy in Jesus Christ. And he says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And, and later on in the, in the remaining 10 verses of verses 1 through 11, Paul's going to unpack for us why we can have joy. But he goes now into a warning. Look at verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What's he What's he mean there? Who's he talking about? Who's he referring to? He's specifically referring, at this period of time, a group of people called the Judaizers. All right, these were Jews who taught that in order for God to accept you, in order for you to receive forgiveness from God, you had to act like a Jew and obey all the ceremonial laws. So for you to be saved, for you to be in good with God, for God to accept you, to forgive you, you basically had to become a Jew, act like a Jew, and do all the things that the Jews did. And Paul says, look out for people like that. It's kind of like as a parent warning their kid about the creepy guy in the creepy van selling creepy candy. All right? You just you tell your kids, listen, if that happens, you don't go near them. Right? You see that. Don't, don't even go, go near them. And Paul's saying, listen, if there's people that are telling you things, like in order for God to forgive you, you've got to change your nationality. In order for God to accept you, you've got to wear certain clothes. Um, you've got to... Have your good deeds outnumber your bad deeds. You've got to be baptized. You've got to be confirmed. You've got to know all the catechism questions and answers. People that say you get, you've got to do that in order for God to accept you and forgive you. He says, look out for people like that. He warns them. He warns them. He says, watch out because that's a righteousness that's based on you. That's not an exceeding righteousness and it's foolishness. It's actually it's deceitful because Paul said, you don't have any righteousness. So when you begin to think that I'm, God should let me in because of my righteousness, you are lying to yourself because you have none to offer according to what Scripture says. So why does Paul warn them? Look at verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We glory in Christ Jesus. He says, why the warning? Paul's saying, listen, church, here's the warning. I'm telling you this because that's not who we are. We're not a people who put our confidence in our own goodness or our own good works, or our own righteousness. No, we put our confidence in Christ. We glory in Him. Our significance as followers of Jesus doesn't come from the religious good things that we think we do. Our confidence that God accepts us, God forgives us, comes from what Christ has done for us. And Paul says, as disciples of Christ, we put no confidence in the flesh. John Calvin, a French reformer in the 1500s, described confidence in the flesh as anything other than Christ. Anything. Paul says, look out for people who teach, preach, write, post, that God's going to accept you if you're just a better person, you're just a nice moral person, as long as your good numbers out, good deeds outnumber your bad, that you're okay. That's not true. He says, look out for people that say, if you just wear this or don't wear this or follow this set of rules. Or, he said, that's, that's a righteousness based on you. That's not an exceeding righteousness. And Paul's going to tell us why that doesn't solve our problem. He's going to tell us, actually, if you're trusting in those things, it just things makes it worse for you. And he'll tell us why in verse 7. And then in verse 4 through 6, actually what he's going to do now, he's going to drive home a point by this point by sharing his own story. And let me just say this as an aside. A great tool for sharing about Jesus is sharing your own story of Jesus and the impact and difference Jesus is making in your own life. 
So Paul shares his own story here. Why? Because if anyone could depend upon their own goodness and morality for God to accept them, it was Paul. It's like my son Luke and we three-point basketball competition. I challenge anyone to take him on. You will not beat Luke. You won't. I've tried. And I'm, you can be, I, I mean, we've all tried. The kid, and he, it's crazy. He'll grab the little thing. He won't even move. He'll just boom, boom. And he's like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. I'm like, seriously? I challenge anyone to take him on and try to beat him in, in three. You're just not. And Paul, he's saying, listen, I, I challenge anyone. Bring me your religious resume. Bring it. Set it up against mine. I'm going to win every time. And he's not saying that to boast. He's saying that's truth. If anyone could trust in their own righteousness, it's me, Paul said. Look at what he says, and he begins to give this list. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, what's that mean? Well, that was a Jewish law given to God's people hundreds of years before Paul was born. And this actually speaks more about Paul's parents than Paul himself. What this tells you is that Paul grew up in a religious home. He grew up with godly parents. They knew the the laws of God, and they said, hey, we're going to have our children follow God's law, and so we're going to make sure, and God's law says, have your your son circumcised on the eighth day, so we're going to follow that. So Paul grew up in a family that was religious. Maybe they were a family that, you know, they were all about the catechism, and I'm not saying these things are bad, right? But if you're depending upon these things for your righteousness... We're deceiving ourselves. And Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. He came not only from a, a religious home or godly home, he came from a religious nation. Israel had a special relationship with God. He says he's of, of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, what's that mean? Actually, Paul's birth name was Saul. And his name got changed later to Paul. Now, little Israel history here, Jewish history. Israel's first king, his name was Saul. Israel's first king came from the tribe of Benjamin. So I think what Paul's trying to communicate is, I'm named after the first king of Israel. I got kingly heritage. I grew up in a godly home. I grew up in a religious country, a nation. I got this kingly heritage. I'm named after Billy Graham. Right? I, I got it. And then he goes on. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. And in another letter that Paul wrote, he actually says he was a pastor's kid. He was a son of a Pharisee, Paul says. Right? He went to church all his life. Maybe went to Christian school, went on mission trips, volunteered. I mean, you couldn't get more religious than a Pharisee. And so Paul's trying to show his resume here. He's saying, man, if there's anyone that could could take their religiousness, their, their, right, their own righteousness, and think that it was an advantage to them with God. It's me, he's saying. And he says, as for zeal, he said, I wasn't just a Christmas, Easter kind of guy. No, 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 no. I had passion. I had zeal. There were needs to be, I, I, was on, I was there every time the church gathered. I was there. I had zeal. In fact, he says, I, I was blameless when it came to the law. Blameless. I mean, he was unimpeachable when it came to righteousness. You couldn't find anything bad on this guy. He was the good dad, the good husband, the good boss, the good churchgoer, the good volunteer, all these things. And, and, and hear me, some of these, I'm not saying these things are bad. Some of these things are good privileges. 
But the moment we begin depending on these for our righteousness, they become horrible things. Why? Paul goes on to answer that in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What's he mean there? He says, whatever righteous actions, whatever good deeds I thought were to my advantage with God, they're detriment now. I see now that they were detrimental. Not because they in and of themselves were bad things, but he says, let me tell you why those things I now see as loss. In verse 8, he tells us, indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that word knowing Christ, let me explain what that word means. It, it has packed into it this deep oneness, this incredible intimacy. The Old Testament was written in the language of Hebrew. The New Testament was written in the language of Greek. If you take that word in, word know, that Paul says here in Greek, okay, follow me here, and you translate it in, what, what would that word mean in Hebrew? It's the same word used in Genesis 4, 1, when it says Adam knew his wife Eve. What Paul's saying is knowing Christ deeply in a friendship, intimately like I know him, when I know Christ and I see how good of a treasure he is and I look at all those other things, when I compare whatever I was depending upon for my own righteousness to get me in good with God and I compare that to knowing Christ, he said it's rubbish, it's excrement, it's feces. That's what the word rubbish means, which tells us that's how glorious knowing Jesus is. That's how glorious Christ is, he says. And he says, when I look back over those things that I thought were going to get me into the kingdom of heaven, actually what they were doing, they were keeping me from the best thing, Christ. That's why they were detrimental. Because of my focus was on my righteousness and what I had to do and just being a better person, a nicer person, or changing this or doing this. And it was keeping me from the very best thing. And the best thing is Christ and knowing Him. I remember on a church or at a church where I was on staff, I remember being in an evening service. I believe it was an evening service. And the pastor at that time gave kind of an altar call at the end. I'll never forget this. You know, and we're singing, I don't know, probably let's say the hymn, Just As I Am. And let's say we're on the seventh verse. There aren't seven verses, but it felt like it. Okay? And we're singing it. And we're all like, all, speaking for everybody there, me. I'm like, let's roll. Can we just get this thing going? So move on. And I'll never forget, a gentleman walks down the aisle. And he goes down the aisle. Pastor comes down to meet him. And he begins to understand that this man who walked down the aisle realizes that he was not a Christian and needed to become a Christian. This guy's name was Tom. This guy was on staff at the church. He was one of the janitors at the church. In fact, Tom was a guy that you thought godly man was on the outside looking in. Grew up in church, served the church, had his kids in church. His kids were all grown, and now they're serving in the church. Everything that you th- 
This guy, you would thought, absolutely this guy knows Christ. Absolutely, based upon the external, for sure. And I'll tell you, when Tom went forward and went down, I'm not going, what about me? If that guy, I'm not going, wow. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's going, listen, it doesn't matter. If you're depending upon all those things, your own righteousness, your own goodness, for your own relationship with Christ, you're deceiving yourself because you have no righteousness to give. None. And that's what makes Jesus so gloriously beautiful. So beautiful. And he says, knowing Christ, a fellowship with Christ. Well, how did Paul come to know this? Acts chapter 9. Paul's on the Damascus road. Jesus shows up. And in that moment, when Paul sees Jesus for who Jesus really is, Paul begins to see his righteousness for what it really was, which is rubbish. You see, it's not until you see Jesus for who he really is that you begin to see that your righteousness is really nothing at all compared to Christ, compared to him. And so in that moment, Paul says, yes, you are so much better. You are who I need. You're the righteousness I need. And you can see why Paul, in verse 2, warns them. Right? He's saying, I, I want to warn you of people that are pointing, pointing you to something other than Christ because they're deceiving you. They might have even the best intentions, but they're deceiving you from the best thing who is Jesus Christ. And that's why then in verses 9 and 10, he talks about, I have this righteousness of my own, or not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's saying, listen, when Christ found me, when I stopped depending upon my own righteousness and repented and received Christ, He solved my righteousness problem because He became my righteousness. Look what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, He became to us righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, He became sin so that we might become, check this out, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That should blow us away. That Christ would do that. When we have nothing to offer, no righteousness to give, he says, you need a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And we go, Paul, Jesus, I don't have any. He's... He's going, I know. That's why I came. To give you my righteousness. So that you could be with me forever. And have a relationship with me. That's why I came. It's grace. Because I love you. And that's why Jesus is such good news. And that's why Paul says, listen, Christian, rejoice in the Lord. Jesus solves your righteousness problem. He's the exceeding righteousness. And that's why in verse 10, Paul goes, I want to know him. I want to know this one that has given me his own righteousness. I want to know him. And so if you sit there this morning and the presence of Christ is in you, you have the presence of joy in you because you have the presence of Christ. And if you sit there this morning with the presence of Christ in you, you have the presence of righteousness in you, not yours, but the righteousness of Christ in you. (laughs) Crazy. That's why Paul says you can live joyfully. Because Jesus satisfies your need for righteousness by being the righteousness you need. Now, what's all this mean? All right? What's all this mean? A couple things. I think it means a ton ton of things. But let me just narrow it down to two. I think it means, one, we're far too easily pleased. 
We're, we're far too easily pleased, meaning we settle for lesser joys than the greatest joy of knowing Christ. We're far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis, he wrote the Narnia novels. The movies are based on them. This is what he had to say. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. He's saying our greatest joy is in Christ and knowing Him. He's the holiday at the sea, and yet we settle for making these mud pies. And he's saying, just get to know Christ. And when you know Him, you begin to see Him for who He is and how gloriously good He is. Can you imagine a church, a people that aren't going to settle for lesser joys, a people that are going to rise up and say, I'm going to desire Christ so much, I'm going to, I want to get to know Him as my treasure. The second thing it means is this, if Christ has satisfied your need for righteousness, then listen, hear me. This is like, I'm about ready to pop, okay? If Christ has satisfied your need for righteousness, then stop hoping you're good enough. You're not. But He is. He is. Stop comparing yourself with others because if Christ is in you, God already sees you as perfect. Stop trying to be perfect. Because in Christ you already are. Stop performing. Stop performing and start worshiping. Stop trying to earn God's approval because in Christ God already approves of you. Stop controlling and start resting. Stop looking for joy in something or someone other than Jesus. He is the joy. And stop looking to your religious busyness for your significance and start resting in Christ. Stop. It's beautiful for me, for me personally. Stop wearing that yoke of guilt and start enjoying Christ's robe of righteousness with a big old monogram that says, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And start getting to know Christ, your righteousness, your joy. Living joyful is knowing Christ because Jesus satisfies your need for righteousness by being the righteousness you need. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. And as we take the bread and we take the cup, maybe we ask ourselves a question, what now? I believe there are people here this morning that have been trusting in something other than Christ for your righteousness. Maybe you've grown up in church all your life. Does, maybe, I don't know. But I believe there's some here this morning that are looking to something or someone other than Jesus for your righteousness. And for you, what now? It is simply to repent of your sin and receive Christ for who he is and take his righteousness. He offers it to you because of his grace. And for others of us that know Christ, whose righteousness you now possess, just think on that. Marinate your heart in that truth for a moment. That if Christ is in you, you have the righteousness you need because he is the righteousness you have. And Robert Murray McShane, who is a 
died at the age of 29, a single pastor in Scotland said this, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Think about that. Unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ. And he says this, dive and dive again. You will never come to the bottom of those depths. We're far too easily pleased with staying on the surface. So I want to challenge us, church, go deep into knowing this Christ. Take the scriptures and know him and don't settle until you know him more tomorrow than you knew of him today. Don't settle. He's too good. He's just too good. And as we think about the righteousness of Christ, it is a gift of grace to us, only possible because of his death on the cross through his body broken and his blood shed. And as the band plays, and after I pray, I want you to spend time talking to this Jesus who is your righteousness. And when your heart is ready, you go to the table and you take the bread and you take it in the cup and you say, Jesus, thank you. And as you leave, you take a Bible You take a book, a bookmark, and you go this week challenged to know this Christ who is your joy, who is your righteousness. And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you, for your joy, for your righteousness. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus, you are so gloriously good.